um, to be here at this, at this season. And um, I was thinking about just the, the Advent. This church celebrated that last year. And the first time that Michelle and I visited this church was on the Joy Sunday. And so we were here for the first time a year ago, and nobody knew who we were, and we didn't know who anybody else, who anybody was. And it was so fun. Uh, Judy was very friendly to us, and so she talked to us on our first day. And I still remember the introduction to the sermon. I don't know if you remember. It was about joy and what makes people happy. And if you'll remember, Tom Bernardo did a thing about how kids love Santa. How many of you were here there and remember that? And he showed all these pictures. Oh, hold on one second. Let's see. All right. All right, is that on? Oh, there we go. Hey, it's working. I like it. Now I should turn this one off. Thank you, Craig. We'll just give it to Craig. Yeah, I'm not allowed to touch technology after today. So we had a, Tom had this PowerPoint of, of all these kids and how joyful they were about Santa Claus. And then he went through all these things and all these kids sitting on Santa's lap just screaming, crying. They were in terror. It was just terrible. And so he showed those as he talked about the joy of Christmas. Um, man, you know, I think the thing that we could be most joyful of is that Jesus took on flesh. The fact that he came to this earth for you and I, that he made a way of salvation. And when we think about what it means that God took on flesh and that Jesus dwelt among us, that he became a man like we are, man, how joyful is that? I mean, it's so amazing when we think about that. And when you think about the New Testament, there were so many people that were, well, not so many. There were so many people that missed Jesus, but there were people who were looking forward to his coming. You know, there was Simeon in the temple and this old man, and, he, and God had told him, um, you're going to live to see the Messiah come. Like people had been waiting for the Messiah. And so this, this priest is told that you're going to see him. And, and after the priest sees him, he's like, okay, I can die now. This is what I've been waiting for. And then there was this prophetess named Anna, and she was 84 years old. She'd been married to her husband for many years, and she was 84, and she was a widow, and she was waiting and ready to see Jesus and just so excited that she got to see Jesus. But you think about all the people that missed the coming of Jesus. And I just, I think about the analogy in that to our season. We have so many things going on. We can be so busy. And even as believers, we can miss Jesus in the Christmas season, which is we're celebrating his birthday. And that is just awesome. So as far as joy, the very first time in the New Testament that joy is mentioned is actually with the wise men. They have, they're just overjoyed. And that's recorded in Matthew. They're overjoyed at seeing the star, knowing that Jesus is coming. And then this right here, Luke chapter 2, verse 10. And this, this, was, this was read this morning, but this is the shepherds. And this is what it says. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I will bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Man, what an amazing thing. So this morning, that is certainly the most joyful truth that Jesus took on flesh. 
And Christmas is a season where we're so excited and so overjoyed that we just give everybody gifts. I mean, that's right why we do it, right? We think that Jesus is just amazing. We're so thankful and we're so happy and we just buy gifts for everybody we know. Well, that's why we should do it. That may not be why we do it. And so that's what Christmas is about. And so this morning, we're going to be considering this, that God so loved the world that he gave Jesus, and in Jesus, he gave us grace and truth. And so we're going to think about uh, three things this morning. The first one is this. We're going to consider the fact that Jesus is a human. He has humanity. That is an amazing truth that as we dwell on that, as we think about that and what that means, it is so significant. But when Jesus took on humanity, and this is our second point, he gave up none of his deity. So Jesus was completely God before he took on humanity. And after he took on humanity, he was still completely God. And that's very, very important. And then the third thing we, we're going to consider, and there's three, Jesus, when he came, gave three amazing gifts and grace and truth, right? But also, we know God because of Jesus. So the three gifts that, that God gave us, he gave us in Christ grace, he gave us truth, which is how we know the way of salvation, and he gave us a close personal relationship with him in Christ. Because of Jesus, we can know the Heavenly Father. And that is just an amazing thing in an intimate and personal way. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. If you have your Bibles, go to John chapter 1. And uh, so far in our season, we looked at Hebrews chapter 1, which talked about how Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature, how he made everything, and how he's better than angels. And then last week, we looked at the passage, which just talks John chapter 1, verse 1 through 13, how Jesus was with God and Jesus was God, and also how um, to as many as receive Jesus, they can become the children of God. And then we're going to take our next few verses here. So let's consider this, his humanity. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What an amazing thing that God took on flesh. That's something that really happened. Now, when you think about the nature of Jesus and who Jesus is, Jesus was always God. John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. Jesus, as God, never had a beginning. So he's always been God. He's eternal. And we saw that in John 1, 1. But not only is Jesus eternal, and not only was he eternally God, but he took on humanity. What an amazing thing that Jesus did that. That's described in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 12, where it talks about the fact there's a word that's used, Jesus emptied himself, or it could be translated, he humbled himself. And some people, when they read Philippians 2, get confused, and they think that emptying means that God gave up some of his divine attributes, that Jesus gave up some of what it meant to be God, and that didn't happen. Jesus humbled himself, and in Philippians 2, it says that Jesus humbled himself by taking on humanity. The only thing that changed about Jesus' nature in the incarnation is that he added full humanity to himself. 
And that is incredibly important as we understand Jesus. And one of the reasons that it's so important for us as believers to understand this is because when we believe in Jesus, when we trust Jesus for salvation, it's important that we're believing in the real Jesus. And one of the things you'll see in Scripture, and you'll also see this in all other religions, is who Jesus is or the work that Jesus did is always changed. So either Jesus was not fully God or he wasn't fully man or his work was not completely sufficient. And so some people say, well, Jesus did die for us, but he made it possible for us to earn our salvation. If you believe that, you can't be a believer. If you believe that Jesus is God, but you don't believe he's human, that he was fully man, you can't be a believer. If you believe that Jesus was a man, but that he wasn't God, you're not a Christian. So understanding who Jesus is is important because if we don't put our faith in the real God, then we're not saved. And that's the amazing thing is that we have to, as a Christian, you have to sincerely believe in Jesus. But if you sincerely believe something that's not true, it won't help you. Um, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to Christianity, you must sincerely believe the truth. And so it's important for us to understand the nature of Jesus. And here's the, here's the amazing thing. Now, God created the world perfect, right? And Jesus took on humanity. Why? It was to solve a sin problem. Who caused our sin problem? Okay, was that, did anybody, I heard somebody say Adam and Eve. Well, okay, so we could say it was Satan. It was Satan's idea. And then... He couldn't get to Adam, so he got to Eve, but Eve got to Adam. And so whose fault is it? I mean, come on, really. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and that story's been going on in marriages from the very beginning. It's your fault. But here's, here's the amazing thing, is that the human race didn't fall when Eve ate the apple. Well, we don't know if it was an apple. I guess I should be careful, right? When she ate from the fruit of the tree. But when Adam ate, the human race fell. So we're in John chapter 1, verse 14. But I want you to look up at the screen. And I want you to think about this amazing connection between Adam creating a problem, Adam, our father, a human, creating a problem, and Jesus coming back to solve that problem. Now, before we read this, I want to just talk to you. Have you ever heard the phrase, to err is human, to forgive is divine? Did you know that that's actually not true? Now, we do describe it that way, but we describe it that way in a sense because every single person we know is errors, right? They sin. They're fallen. There's something broken in, in their nature and in their character. But did you know that humanity does not have connected with it sin? Um, Jesus was fully human. But did he have any sin? Okay. Adam was fully human. And before Adam ate from the tree, did Adam have any sin? None. So Adam was a perfect human until he fell. 
And so Jesus inherited that perfect humanity. There's no difference between the humanity that Jesus had and the humanity that Adam had. Now, the, the difference between Jesus and us is Jesus' humanity was not corrupted by sin, and ours is. And it tells us why. Romans 5, 12, it says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, the amazing thing about our sinfulness is that we inherited it from Adam. David says, in sin, my mother conceived me. So he was born in sin. It doesn't mean she was immoral. It just means that he was born with a sin nature. He was born broken. He was born separated from God. I love this as a parent, like knowing that, that I don't have to worry about messing up my kids. They're already messed up. They were born messed up. So I'm just trying to make, do whatever I can to try to help them be better. You know, they, hey man, that's right. Yeah, these kids with problems, they came out that way. It's not our fault. But you want to know what the other thing is? Not only are we born with a sin nature, but we're sinners because we actually live that out and we do things that are wrong. So we inherited sin. And some, some might say, well, that's not fair that Adam, he was born perfect and I have to be born a sinner. But then we actually live out our nature and we actually do things that rebel against God, that violate God's standards. And so we are in trouble with God. We are spiritually dead. And that's Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And then I love the rest of Romans 5. But when we look specifically at verse 17, it talks about Jesus and what Jesus's humanity meant for us. For if because of one man's transgression, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus took on humanity because he was our representative. So when we think theologically about Jesus, this is an important thing for us to understand. If Jesus wasn't God, he couldn't have paid the price for our sins. So if anything about the deity of Jesus changes when he takes on humanity, he can't save us. He has to be fully God. And his humanity has to be exactly like ours. And so if his humanity is different than our humanity, then he can't be our representative. And so Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. That way he can pay for our sins and he can represent us. And Satan always attacks that belief. And so throughout church history, there have been all kinds of debates and things, and, and they've clarified that Jesus' divine nature and his human nature were not mixed together. Because if you mix them together, 
then it's not God and it's not man either. At the same time, Jesus' person is not divided. It's not separated. Jesus is not two people. He is one person. So these are things that we know are true. Now, do we understand it all? Can we figure out? Like there are certain things in life that are just hard to know that, we can, that we're never going to be able to fully comprehend. Like the Trinity. How can God be three persons but one God? How can that happen? We don't understand that. How can Jesus be fully God and fully man? And how those things exactly fit together, we don't know. And so we don't have to be able to know everything to be able to know something. And so those are things that we know that the Bible clearly teaches. And even in this passage, last week we talked about the Trinity and how that was expressed in John 1. But here we're going to look at Jesus' nature, fully human. So he has two natures, and it's interesting that, that Satan is always attacking that. You know, 2 Corinthians, Paul in 2 Corinthians eleven three, 3, he says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, that you will be led away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And then he talks about the preaching of another Jesus. See, sometimes we can have in mind that if somebody says they believe in Jesus, that, okay, it's all good and we're all the same. But if you change what you believe about the nature of Jesus or about what Jesus has done, it's not saying the word. Um, some of us have friends named Jesus, right? So it's not just the name. It's who that name represents. And as we put our faith in Jesus, it's important that we understand that he is fully God. Now, here's an amazing thing. God took on flesh. He became a person, and it says here, he became a man, and it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Think about what that means, that Jesus came and lived with us. He lived on earth. He lived with people. He walked with people. He talked with people. And all the things that that means about what we know about Jesus. So Jesus was our perfect example. A lot of times when, when I read through the New Testament, I think, I want to follow Paul's example. I want to follow John's example. Or I, I pick out people. I want to follow their example. But I just feel like I can't follow Jesus' example. Because he was God and I'm not God. And one of the things that we learn about Jesus is when he was on earth, his nature didn't change. But he lived life the way you and I live life. He prayed. He talked to God. He, he lived his life in dependence, looking and learning God's will. And so Jesus did those things. Luke chapter 2, verse 52 is another one of those verses that's just amazing. It's hard to comprehend. But it says, it's talking about Jesus. So Luke chapter 2, toward the end, talks about Jesus as a teenager. There's only like one little tiny section. But Luke 2.52 says that Jesus grew in wisdom. So he was growing in his intelligence. How can the all-knowing all God grow in intelligence? I don't know. But as a, as a man, he grew up and he grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. So Jesus started as a baby and he grew physically. He went through all the things physically that people go through as they're growing. And this is, this is the most amazing part of that statement. He grew in favor with God and man. Do you remember that? 
Jesus grew spiritually. He grew relationally with God and with people. An amazing thing, Jesus was our perfect example, and he didn't, he didn't make use of his deity as he lived life. He never stopped being God, but he lived life as our perfect example. And so Jesus was God. Now, the difference between Jesus and people, um, there are other people in the Bible who, for example, have raised people from the dead, right? But when they were raising people from the dead, whose power was raising people through them? It was God's power through them. When Jesus raised people from the dead, that was still done in submission to the Father. But whose power was raising them? It was his own power. And so Jesus was God, but lived a life as our perfect example. And these are some more verses that we should treasure. This is not the first time I've put these up before you. But these are things I think about all the time in my relationship with the Lord. Think about this. Hebrews 2.16, for surely it is not angels that he helps. Jesus didn't die for angels. He died for people. Angels sinned, God created hell. You and I sinned, and God came up with a plan to save us. And so it says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now you think about that. Because Jesus took on humanity, he understands you. He knows how you feel. He felt all the things that you felt. He feels the same temptations that you feel. Jesus relates to us because he took on humanity. That is an amazing thought. And then a couple chapters later in Hebrews, it says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Like think about when you need help. Um, we'll look a little later about how scary God is. But Jesus, because he's come, because he's died for us, has made a way for us to receive grace it's just amazing. And Jesus dwelled among us. So think about when you go to somebody's house, it's because you care about them. Doesn't that kind of reflect um, like a personal relationship? We just went to a, a Mexican restaurant the other day, this, just earlier this week. And on all the walls, the owner of this restaurant had pictures of himself with all kinds of presidents and really power. I mean, I'm just walking around going, man, how could one person know all these people? And think about what that would mean if I said, oh, yeah, so-and-so's my friend, and I just, like, pick somebody really important or somebody really empower powerful or some professional athlete, and I could show you pictures of me eating at his house and him eating at my house. You'd go, wow, they actually know each other. Jesus took on flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we know each other. 
That's an amazing thing that God has done. Think about Zacchaeus, that expression of love. When, when Jesus says, Zacchaeus, today I'm coming to your house. And the Pharisees were so ticked that he would eat with a sinner like Zacchaeus. But that's what Jesus did. It's an expression of care. It's an expression of personal relationship. And in verse 13 of John chapter 1, it says, To as many as believe him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. We need to dwell on the fact that Jesus took on flesh, that he dwelt among us. Um, I think a lot of times we don't think enough about that, and it makes our Christianity to a degree defective. Like, think about a person. Think about an orphan. You know, Jesus, if we believe in him, we have the right to become children of God. Now picture that there's an orphan somewhere who's adopted, who's legally declared the descendant of somebody. Maybe they're an orphan and they're, they're, they're poor and they have no family, and a really rich person adopts them and just says, you're adopted. And so legally, they are the child of that person who adopted them. And let's just say that that is like somebody really rich. And I won't even throw out names because I don't know who you like and don't like. I don't want to offend anybody. But let's just picture that the person doing the adoption is rich. And if he says, you're legally my child, and one day when I die, you're going to get an inheritance. But between now and then, I have nothing to do with you. I'm not really involved in your life. I'm not going to take you into my house. I'm not going to spend time with you. I'm not going to raise you the way a parent would raise a kid, teaching that, that kid, loving that kid, caring for that kid. You know a lot of people live their Christianity that way? They pray a prayer. They say, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a child of God. And one day when I die, I'll go to heaven. And nothing in the rest of their life reflects the fact that they are in God's family. You know, that is not how it is for us as believers. That, that's part of what God gives us in grace and truth is we have a relationship. We have love. We have care. There's nothing we go. God's not just going to help us someday in heaven. He helps us now. He helps us today. He cares about you. He knows what you're going through. He's giving, given you in his word the guidance, the instruction, the truth to be able to live. It is so powerful that Jesus has come to live among us. Here's the second thing, is that when Jesus was doing all that, he was not giving up his deity. He was not changing his nature as God in any way. Look at this in John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, so that's verse 14. So they see Jesus. They saw him in all of his glory. Look at verse 15. So this is John is talking about the disciples saw Jesus in his glory. Verse 15, and John bore witness about him and he cried, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, if you read your Bible, you know that John was six months older than Jesus. So on a human level, in no sense was John first, um, or was Jesus first. But when he says that Jesus was first, it's because Jesus eternally existed. He didn't come into being, he didn't come into existence at his birth the way John did. And so Jesus was first. And then verse 18, look at verse 18, this is amazing. No one has ever seen God. 
And then look at this. The only God who is at the Father's side, he's made him known. So right here, Jesus is called the only God who is at the Father's side. An affirmation of the deity of Jesus. When they talked about seeing the glory of God, I think that's probably a reference to um, Jesus, James, and John. When, when he took them up onto the mountain and he was transfigured, and it just says in verse 3 of Mark chapter 9, it says his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So they saw Jesus change, and they saw Elijah and Moses. And then you have Peter, and it says, uh, Peter runs up and says, hey, it's good that you guys are here. Shall I make a house for you, for you each? And you just think, man, what a, what a dumb thing to say. But, but it goes on actually in that passage, and it says that Peter was kind of afraid. He didn't know what to say. He just said something stupid at the time. So we can relate to Peter that he did that. But they were just amazed seeing Jesus and seeing his glory being reflected. So Jesus is God. He gave up none of his deity. And so when we think about that, that's one of the things we do when we come to church is we recognize who Jesus is. You know, church, a big part of church, it's fellowshipping with the body of Christ, but it is worshiping Jesus. It is worshiping God. It is thinking about who he is. It, it is learning from his word. It is submitting to him. Like church is about Jesus. It's about the fellowship that we have in Christ, but it's about Jesus. We're not just here for a show. We're not just here for what we can get. We're here to see Jesus for who he is. It's part of what we do on Sunday mornings. Now, let's think about this. The three amazing gifts that Jesus gave. It says this in John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Those two things are so important. Without God's grace, we would never want to know the truth about God. It would be terrifying. It would be undoing. Everybody who sees God in any way in the Bible, anytime God shows himself to anybody, they're just undone. In fact, the Bible says that no one can see God and live. Nobody's ever seen God at any time because if you saw God, you would die. When God was talking to the nation of Israel, when he was given the Ten Commandments, he's up in the mountain and there's all the smoke and there's all the stuff going on. And the nation of Israel says, hey, they weren't saying we want to see God. They were saying, no, wait a second. God, talk to Moses. Don't talk to us or we'll die. When God was speaking to Israel, he said, be very careful that nobody looks too high and accidentally sees God or they'll die. When Moses was thinking about God's grace and how much he loved God, and he said, God, I want to see you. I want to know you. Just had this, this passion to know who God was. And when he asked for that, God says, okay, go up onto a mountain. He sticks him into a rock, and he shows him and just let him see a little bit of his glory because if he actually saw him, he would die. Like, we need to think about how amazing and how holy and how awesome God is. The Apostle John, when he, when he has a vision of Jesus in Revelation, he falls over like he's dead. And God is holy. His, his holiness is terrifying. And for many people, you know, the Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. 
And so when we see God for who he is, we have a reverence, we have a fear for who he is. And there are so many people when it comes to God, they make God like them. There's this passage in the Old Testament that says, um, you're wrong because you think I'm like you, but I'm not like you. See, some people deal with God's holiness, his wrath, the punishment that will be poured out on sin. They deal with that by just kind of changing who God is and making him a nice guy. And basically, they just feel like I'm in charge of my life and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And hey, God, I'll let you come with me. Instead of saying, no, you're awesome, you're holy, I fall on my face before you, I worship, I, I repent because I am a sinner. And so God is holy and God is awesome. And what makes that okay is not to change what the Bible says is true about that, but to understand what God has done in sending Jesus to provide grace. What is grace? You know, grace, um, grace is where our salvation comes from. Grace is goodwill, it's kindness, it's a gift, it's, it's goodwill towards somebody. God has goodwill toward us. Look at this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. You know, I know people who say, oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good person, I'm nicer, I, I know terrible people, but I'm not one of those terrible people. Nobody goes to heaven because they're not a terrible person. Because when God's making his list of what's terrible, I just want you to know you're on the list. You're on the list and everybody you know is on the list. And you're in trouble and you are undone. And for us, we feel like, oh, I'm here. Hitler, he's really bad. He's over here. Did you know on the scale of good and bad, God, probably, God doesn't even see the difference between you and Hitler? The only thing that makes you acceptable is what Jesus did. And, you know, that is so amazing. It's so amazing because you don't have to worry that you're not good enough. If you ever blow it, you don't have to think, oh, man, maybe I blew it. As you, as you think about things in your life that are not what they should be, that shouldn't make you afraid of God. Because it's not on the basis of ourselves that we have right standing. It's God's grace poured out on us. So it's undeserved favor expressed to us in, in Christ. It's kindness. It's goodwill. It's a generous, benevolent disposition towards somebody. And you know, God's grace in Christ is sufficient. That just means it is enough. It's enough for your spiritual needs. It's enough for your physical needs. And it's enough for your emotional needs. One of the most powerful passages is the Apostle Paul. He has this huge struggle in his life, and he's just praying, God, please heal me. And God just says no to him. No. And his answer is, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul says, God's grace is so valuable. I'm happy to have my sickness. I'm happy to have my weakness because that's part of how God shows his grace to me. God's grace is not just for salvation. God's grace is to get you through every struggle, trial, difficulty that you will ever face in your life. And the Apostle Paul is so like overwhelmed by God's grace. I'll tell you just a few things. First of all, Paul uses the word grace um, 89 times in his writings. And uh, grace, he says, is in Jesus, and we know that. Uh, grace is where we get salvation. It's the truth that leads to our salvation. It's our standing in salvation. It's our justification. 
Our sins are overcome and forgiven because of God's grace. And here's the other thing, grace and Paul, 10 times more than I think any other single thing, Paul talks about how God's grace is what allows you to change and to say no to sin and to live righteously. Anytime you transition from doing something sinful and you get rid of a bad habit and you get rid of a sinful habit in your life, that's God's grace. And God's grace is what allows us to obey him. In his letters, Paul, Paul 13 times opens his letters talking about grace. And in every single letter, he opens by talking about grace. And in every single letter, he closes by talking about grace. This is just something that is overwhelming in Paul's life. And grace is overwhelming for us. It's powerful. So Jesus gives us grace. He also gives us truth. You know, truth, um, without truth, all this talk about God would be a waste because you can't just sincerely believe something. You actually have to believe what's accurate, what's true, and we have truth in Christ. Now, I, I read an article this week in the Wall Street Journal, and you want to hear the title of it? See what you think of this. If you don't believe in God, lie to your children. <laughs> Yes, that's a, that's a Wall Street Journal. If you don't believe in God, lie to your children. Um, this was written by a psychoanalyst, and um, she wrote some book about how the first three years of a baby's life are important, and moms should be with their kids in the first three years. And I want to read a few, uh, just a little bit of what she said here. She said, as a therapist, I'm often asked to explain why depression and anxiety are so common among children and adolescents. One of the most important explanations and perhaps the most neglected is a declining interest in religion. This cultural shift already has proved disastrous for millions of vulnerable young people. And so they, they did this survey and they evaluated all these people and they adjusted for, for race and social status and all those things. They just did a study and they just said, man, what are the results? Children or teens who report attending a religious service at least once a week score higher on psychological well-being measurements and have a lower risk of mental illness. Weekly attendance was associated with higher rates of volunteering and a sense of mission and forgiveness and lower probabilities of drug use and early sexual initiation. I'm often asked by parents, how do I talk to my children about death if I don't believe in God or heaven? And my answer is always the same, lie. <laughs> Positive moral qualities taught in religion are the building blocks of strong character, and they're also protective against depression and anxiety. You know, it's interesting, uh, you have a world of people that, that want to try to remove God from society, but if you just kind of look at things and you look at the evidence and you do studies on those things to live your life in a broken fashion to live your life and deny the existence of God is harmful it's like isn't it amazing that in our culture we have school shootings we have all these things going on and everybody wants to think about what are all the reasons and nobody wants to think about how about this we have a culture that has rebelled against God and this is what you would expect when you take God out of life but here's the other thing, too. We don't approach things the way this counselor is approaching things. We don't say, if you don't believe in God, lie. Um, you know, Christianity is a, a belief system of truth. 
we don't just do it because it's better for us. We do it because it's true. But it's an, it's an amazing thing that um, they miss even that connection. And the truth is you can't pretend to believe in Jesus. And ultimately, even if your incorrect view of God was more helpful to you in your life, in the scheme of things, it doesn't matter if you spend forever separated from God. This life does matter, but it doesn't matter as much as, as eternity. So Jesus is the truth. He's full of truth. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus is the truth, and Jesus taught the truth, and the Bible is God's truth. Verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here, here's the third gift. God gave us grace. He gave us truth. And he also gave us a knowledge of God himself. Look at verse 18. It says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. You know, Jesus was with God. He came and he lived among us. We got to see God living. And the, even though you and I weren't there, we can read historically accurate descriptions of Jesus. Um, Jesus lived with 12 people. He trained them. He taught them. He sent the Holy Spirit to make sure that they would remember everything he told them. And then he sent them out, and they have been teaching. They, they wrote the New Testament. They trained and they taught people, and Christianity has been passed down. And certainly there have been people who have corrupted it, but there have been genuine believers from the time of Christ to today who have studied and taught and understand what God's Word says. This truth has been passed down. And one of the things that I think is amazing is you'll bump into people who feel like through their own reasoning, through their own evaluation, through their own wisdom, they'll decide who God is, who God is. They'll decide what God is like rather than listening to God who took on flesh and trained faithful people to teach others and inspired his word. You know, when you think about that, that Jesus came and he delivered truth and he gave us, he showed God to us, we approach God in our relationship with him with an attitude of humility. We come and we just, we bow and we just say, God, you tell us what's true. We open up the Bible and we read it and we work really hard to understand what it says. And we just say, God, you're the one who determines truth. Have you ever met somebody who reads the Bible and they don't like something it says and they just say, oh, I don't want to believe in a God like that. If there was a God like that, I don't want to believe in him. You know, how ridiculous that anybody would think that they have a right to make decisions and to say, I will read scripture through my grit. No, we bow down. There's nothing scripture says that we say, I don't like that. If you're a Christian, you are in 100% submission to everything in the Bible. Um, you want to create a riot in our culture? Get a crowd of people and just read some of the plain things that the Bible says in there. People will say, that's insane. How could you believe that? That's so oppressive. That's terrible. That's hate. People will say all kinds of things if you just take the Bible and read it to them. And I would just say it is one thing when the unbelieving world reacts that way. It's totally different 
when people who sit in church who say they believe in God think that they have a right to put God through their grid. Um, God's given us his word. Jesus has explained this holy God to us so that we can worship him and we can love him. What an amazing thing. So this is Christmas and you're probably going to get some gifts and that's great. But the greatest gifts you could ever get are the gifts that Jesus gives. And that's what we need to remember and think about in this season. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your kindness. Lord, I thank you for your word. God, thank you that you are fully God, that you are fully man, that you understand us, that you care for us, that you live with us. And Lord, you've given us grace. You've given us truth so that we can know you. You have shown us the Father. Lord, we are so thankful and so grateful for all of that. And I pray that our Christmas season would be dominated by that, that, the, that Lord, the same grace and the same love that you've showed us, that we will demonstrate that and show that toward others in your name. Amen.